from the newsroom of the Washington Post. ¿Cómo está? Te habla Elisa Hernández del Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with the Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, February 1st. Today, another Democrat enters the race. A former Patriots tight end imagines a new path for black boys, and a bank robber is foiled by an unconventional getaway vehicle. Senator Cory Booker just jumped into the 2020 Democratic primary. And when you watch his announcement video, it's all about bringing people together. The only way we can make change is when people come together. He talks about the revival of civic grace. Together, we will channel our common pain back into our common purpose. Together, America, we will rise. You know, so he has a candidacy that's kind of draped in these, this rhetoric of unity. Matt Beiser is a political reporter for The Post. I mean, he gives hugs to everybody, you know, and he gives hugs to his fellow senators. And Matt says that that's going to be part of Booker's appeal. He's this jovial guy who can bring people together and also a guy who knows how to make a good campaign video. Probably among the best videos that we've seen so far, if we're going to judge these these rollouts. Um, there's a drumline in it. Like, there's a drumline. It looks like a scene from the movie Drumline. It does. And the drumline is sort of like in the background the whole time. And it's this like kind of upbeat background, which kind of characterizes Cory Booker. I mean, he's a very upbeat guy, uh, you know, kind of bounces around uh, as he walks through the Capitol. You know, he, he is kind of a, a very personable guy, which, you know, runs up against Trump, who, who's most certainly not a hugger and is, <laughs> is not like kind of running on unifying. That is a kind of poses a little bit of a challenge for Booker is, is how he kind of merges his desire for unity with the moment that seems like, particularly in the Democratic Party, a desire for fighting and, and a desire for taking it to Trump. Because I feel like that that's what a lot of Democrats would criticize about Obama is sort of like being a little bit too starry-eyed about like, yes, we can all come together or whatever. And that that especially for Booker, like having that sort of note of Obama yeah. would might might put a lot of Democrats off who are like, no, this is a time where you need to like be going toe-to-toe. And Booker has, a, I mean, Booker and Obama do have a lot of similarities re- rhetorically. Their personalities are different, but I think their political philosophies are, are relatively similar. So can an Obama-like message resonate in a Trump era, you know, is, is a big question, I think. And, and a big question for Democrats trying to figure out like what that means for them right now. So we know that he's a Democratic senator from New Jersey. What else do we know about him? So he he has this story uh, of his life of growing up in New Jersey. His parents were among the first black executives at IBM, and they grew up in a mostly white community. They were among the first to integrate this this area. In fact, had trouble getting housing initially because of their race. And you know, he he goes to Stanford and plays football. He gets a Rhodes Scholarship. He goes to Yale Law School. And then after all of that, he moves into Newark, into inner city Newark, and gets active in politics. He runs in 2002 against Sharp James, sort of a longstanding political figure in in Newark, and loses his first race. He wins his next race against Sharp James in sort of a rematch. And he's been in the Senate since uh, 2013. Where has his attention been focused while he's been in the Senate? In the Senate, you know, 
he's had these moments, and, and if there's criticism of him, it's he's kind of flashy. You know, like he he uses social media really well. He's on Twitter all the time. He's on Instagram all the time, and he's kind of picked these moments to stand out. Now, I appreciate the comments of my colleagues. This is about the closest I'll probably ever have in my life to an I am Spartacus moment. One of them most prominently came in the Kavanaugh hearings where he sort of talked about his Spartacus moment, (laughs) you know. I, I openly invite and accept the consequences of my team releasing that email right now. He seemed to play to the cameras a a little bit much. But his reputation in the Senate is actually um, trying to work across the aisle in certain issues, you know, having this bubbly personality and, you know, working on trying to raise minimum wage. He supports marijuana legalization across the country. So, you know, he staked out some, some progressive space, I think, within the party. What's interesting is that in the video, he kind of makes a point of saying that he is the only senator who actually lives in a low-income community. How do you think that that might play out during the course of the campaign? I mean, I think it's it's interesting in contrast in some ways to some of the other candidates. I mean, the way that he's chosen to live his life, where he's brought up in relative privilege. I mean, he's gone to all of these Ivy League schools, but he chose to live in inner city Newark. And I, and I think that that is something that he will say that he's not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. He's he's going to these communities that, that need help. I think they're going to try and highlight his time as mayor in, in Newark, trying to revitalize that city. What are things about Cory Booker's background or experiences that could pose a problem for him? The the role of money and who your donors are is taking an outsized role, I think, in this campaign. And Cory Booker recently has started to try and make amends for, for some of that. Uh, he has a, a sworn off any corporate PAC money. He has spoken against a super PAC that would support him. Coming from New Jersey, a lot of his donors have been wealthy and from Wall Street and financial interests, which I think opens him up to some criticism from Elizabeth Warren, especially. But also these other candidates have a longer record of small dollar donations, which Booker does not. Booker's among those candidates who, is, who have raised high dollar donations. That, that could be a p- potential problem as they try to demonstrate grassroots support from across the country. Booker certainly has some catching up to do uh, in that respect. So we're now a month into 2019, and several Democrats have announced their 2020 plans, and many more are still considering running. With Cory Booker added to the mix, what does the slate of candidates look like now? It's extraordinarily diverse at, at the moment. You have a gay mayor in Pete Buttigieg. You have four senators, three of whom are women. Cory Booker is the second black person in the race. You know, And so it, it's a very diverse field at this stage. And it's extremely wide open, too. Uh, there's not been uh, sort of many prominent males yet enter. So C- Cory Booker sort of changes that a little bit. But there's still this uh, wondering about Joe Biden, about Beto O'Rourke, and about Bernie Sanders. You know, sort of three kind of prominent politicians who would have a big impact on the race. And and so far, everybody's kind of trying to distinguish themselves in terms of where their appeal is. And, and you've seen a lot of that highlighted so far. 
with Kamala Harris announcing on Martin Luther King Day, Cory Booker, uh, you know, today is the uh, first day of Black History Month, which his campaign has highlighted as one reason him getting in the race today. So I think you'll see a little bit of that play out. And it's funny that you realize that it's been so long since Democrats have had such a wide field to look at. And it, it just makes it much more complex to try to anticipate which candidates will play to which groups of people. And you're seeing that, too, in some of the policies. Uh, you know, Democrats have had a standard bearer arguably since 2008. You know, Hillary Clinton was such the front runner in 2016 that I think it stifled some of the debate. And I think now it, it is completely wide open. And that's allowing candidates to talk about you know, a wealth tax, as Elizabeth Warren has outlined, or eliminating private health insurance, you know, as Kamala Harris has outlined. It's creating this, this bubbling up of these different policies that have been in the background before, but now are going to get a national airing for good and for bad. I mean, you can, Republicans are already kind of eager to, to cast Democrats as, as sort of radical and, and outside the mainstream. I think it's going to create this interesting dynamic as these Democrats sort of vie for attention. Thank you so much, Matt. Yeah, thanks for having me. This Sunday is the Super Bowl. The New England Patriots will face off against the L.A. Rams. And the lead-up to the big game is something that former NFL tight end Martellus Bennett is very familiar with. He won the Super Bowl with the Patriots in 2017. And the next year, at the age of 31, Martellus retired. He decided he wanted to do something different, to write about something that has bothered him ever since he was a kid. As black boys, we deserve to be able to dream about more than sports. We deserve the opportunity to dream about going out of space or about being comic book writers or architects or photographers or movie directors without the fear of being judged or shunned for being different. We deserve to have all of our dreams supported. And black boys deserve to know that they don't have to pick up a ball to be successful in life. That's an excerpt from a piece that Bennett wrote for The Post. In his post-football life, his new audience is children. We hand kids balls. You know, you fall in love with that. But I think if there's a kid that you hand a camera, he might fall in love with film the same way he fall in love with dribbling. You know, if you hand a kid a, you know, a paintbrush, he might love that just as much as calling plays. You know what I'm saying? So it's just like, it just depends on what we're handing them. And right now it just feels like we're handing them a ball, but we need to just come with a full toy chest. Martellus says that he wants to inspire children specifically black boys, to dream bigger. And for the people around them to push them toward dreams that aren't just about sports. My whole thing is I want to encourage the community, the world, to look at the black boy differently. I want black boys to start looking at themselves differently. I want them to be able to see that they can do any and everything. Although as a black boy, sometimes you feel like the world limits you and only tells you that you could do so much, but we could do so much more. And that's what this is. It's really about encouraging and continue to encourage the black boy, the boys that when I look at, I see myself and I see all, when I look at them, I see possibilities, but 
when they feel like other people look at them, they don't see all the possibilities. You know, people see danger or people only see athletes. People need to see more when they look at the black boy. And this is kind of me telling the black boy that we also need to see more when we look at ourselves. When I say the black boy, I'm not even just talking about children. I'm just talking about black men, like fellow athletes that I play with. You know, we're 20 and we still view ourselves in the same way that we always have since we were kids. I'm curious, what is your first memory of football? And and when did you realize that football was going to be a career for you? I've always been pretty good at sports, but I never felt like an athlete, if that makes sense. Like when I'm in a locker room is usually when I feel the loneliest because I'm not actually one of the guy guys. I just mm. happen to be really good at sport and I enjoy playing it. I didn't know that it would be a career, but I knew that it would give me an opportunity to pursue other dreams in life. You know, so if I wanted to go to college, you know, I knew that my parents wouldn't be able to afford to put all of us through college. You know, so sports was a way to get to college, to get to the next thing. When you were growing up, what were those moments where you felt like you got the message that sports is something that you can be successful at and like you should go for that and where you didn't really get a message of like, oh, you should, you know, be trying to get straight A's in school or like you have the ability to get into college just based on, you know, your brains? I mean, you get that message from a young age. (laughs) Like it's not really... It doesn't have to be spoken. You could feel it. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just uh, mm-hmm. in the air around us. Like, no one has to tell you that. You could just feel it. And you see the emphasis. Like, we see so many rags and riches stories of guys that made it to the NBA that came from neighborhoods that we came from or guys that made it to the NFL that came from the same circumstances. And when you see something successful, you want to imitate that. And so we imitated it. We practiced it. We were working to get that thing. You'll hear, like, someone's going to win a Super Bowl Sunday. And someone's going to say, I've been working for this since I was a kid. I guarantee you that someone says that. (laughs) Do you have memories of something that you were interested in as a kid or wanted to do when you were a kid that you didn't have a chance to do, something that wasn't sports? Oh, yeah. I remember I was – see, my parents were very supportive in whatever we picked up. Plus, I think it kept us out of trouble as well. If we were always into something, <laughs> then we weren't able to really run the streets, you know. So we always had to be busy. But, like, I love band, right? And I was first chairing band all the time. Band, really? Yeah, I played the trombone for, for years, growing the middle school up. And then I really loved it. And my first time really experiencing the power of choice was when I got to high school. When I got to high school, I was in band. I was a basketball and I played football, right? Mm. The thing they told me as a freshman in high school was you can't do it all. I was given the ultimatum of like, hey, you have to choose one. You can't play both sports or you can't do band as well. I didn't want to do marching band. It was just I didn't want to be walking with my instrument. I wanted to wear a suit. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was sexy, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Even as a kid, I told my dad, I was like, man, they try to make me pick. And my dad was like, well, which one do you want to play? And I was just like, well, I want to play both. And then... That was pretty much that conversation. So I went the next day, I told the coaches, I said, I'm not going to play either. And what did they say? I ended up able to be playing both. And I was one of the few kids in my high school that played both basketball and football. Uh-huh. And then I became the number one basketball, number one football player in the state of Texas. But there's a lot of kids who had that same choice, and they, and they didn't realize that they had, they had power. I think the number one way that we give up power is by thinking that we don't have power. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You you talked in the essay about grades and how when you're an athlete, there's no difference between an A, a B, and a C. It's all about eligible versus not eligible and that anything past eligible is like, fine, we don't care. 
Um, <laughs> can you talk about? It's very true. Can, can you talk about your like what your experience was like in the classroom, or whether you felt like you could still find reasons to push yourself in school, even though it didn't really matter as long as you passed with C's. Yeah, I mean, I was a I was an honor roll student, but there was times where I would get B's on purpose to be like, oh man, I got a B. I don't know how I got this B just to fit in with my friends who didn't really care as much about school as long as they were passing to play. Like they'll be last minute doing turning the essays and things like that. And I'll graduate, you know, up there with everybody else. Like I was really good in school. I was really good in classes. And sometimes I felt like I had to hide my intelligence. I had coaches in the NFL, like, actually compliment me for my intelligence, but also shun me for my intelligence as well. What do you mean? Like, I, I have I have had coaches that be like, oh, you're smarter than me. Like, can you let me, like, I'm like, what did, when, when did we become the, I thought we was competing in football, not in, you know, mm-hmm. who the intellectual battlefield. Like, it's just, it's not that I'm smarter than you. It's just like, I'm just listening. I'm look, I'm looking at things. Like I see things. Like I have to. I ask a lot of questions. So sometimes cultures will be like, "Hey, I'm probably gonna make some mistakes today. Can you not raise your hand or wait till after and I come see and we could talk about it together?" Because they felt like I would embarrass them if I caught something that they didn't catch. Like, like don't be a know it all or something. But it wasn't that I know it all. It's that I wanted to know more. So I imagine that you probably talked to a lot of kids and a lot of black boys who really idolize you because you were such a successful NFL player. What do you tell them knowing that, you know, one of the reasons I think you're so great is because of your career in sports, even though you're basically saying, like, don't, you shouldn't be trying to pursue a career in sports? Well, the the thing is, I'm not telling, well, I don't tell them that they shouldn't try to pursue, I'm not a dream killer. I don't tell them not to pursue sports. Mm-hmm. I, I tell them that most of them won't make it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what I'm saying like I, I just be realistic like most of you guys in this room you know stand up three of you stand up that's how many of you possibly will make it that's just being real like that's just what it is and my brother always laughed because every time he has this free camps or whatever I say that to the kids but he's like I'm just happy every time you say that it sounds bad when you say it as a parent but at the same time I'm happy that you're the one that dropped the ball on them instead of me having to do it as a parent or parents having to do it themselves so I just tell them like look most of y'all aren't gonna make it and then I ask them what else are you interested in and then you'd be surprised how the room lights up mm-hmm. so there's just like so many things that all these kids want to do that had nothing to do with sports you know, some were there because their parents wanted them there. Some were just there with friends, and some of them just liked to play. Some of them were just like me. They were good at it, but they wanted to pursue other things and wanted to use this as a way to move through life. And you'd be surprised that, like, an 11-year-old kid would be like, you know, I feel like if I get really good at sports, I could change the outcome for my family and the life of my family. These are, like, 11-year-old kids that's noticing this. Like, it's crazy. Because you, you could get paid at such a young age. Martellus, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. And now, one more thing about an e-scooter, a robbery in Austin, Texas, and a 19-year-old named Luca Mangiarano. We don't know much about what happened inside the bank other than he gave a teller a note asking for 50s and 100s before he just sort of bolted. 
Peter Hawley is a tech reporter for The Post who wrote about this bank robbery that happened back in December. No one was hurt, and police won't say how much money was stolen. But they believe that Mangiarano managed to escape on an e-scooter parked outside the bank. And he might have gotten away with it, too, if it weren't for those meddling e-scooters. What's unique about that is electric scooters have tons of information about the people who ride them. So it ended up being really easy for police to find out exactly who this person was. Police in Austin obtained a court order and sent it to Uber, the company that owns the scooter used in the escape. In the past, there was fingerprints and then there was DNA. Now there's a digital fingerprint. What people don't seem to realize is that you're also handing over tons of information, not only about your identity, but about your behavior through geolocation data. And that data can be really revealing about your personal habits. For example, if they know that you frequently travel to a store that sells sex toys, or they know that you go to a hospital, that data becomes really useful and can even be sold. And in this case, that digital footprint led police right to their suspect. Mangiarano was arrested last week and charged with felony robbery by threat. There's a certain tech irony to that. Like, I'm using this thing to get away. I'm actually telling you everything about myself, which could only happen in 2019. Peter Hawley reports on tech for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who composes original music and does sound design for the show. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 